Good evening, everybody. Welcome uh, to the Latin American Center um, seminar for week four. It's a real pleasure to introduce an old friend, uh, Jim McGuire, who's the uh, professor and chair of government at Wesleyan University in Connecticut in the United States. Um, Jim and I were just figuring out we've known each other exactly um, 25 years now. Uh, we spent Thanksgiving 88 um, <laughs> drowning our misery after Michael Dukakis lost uh, <laughs> uh, the election that year. I remember that well. Um, Jim uh, was an undergrad at Swarthmore and did his PhD at Berkeley where he studied with uh, David and Ruth uh, Collier. He published uh, a book based on his dissertation uh, called Peronism Without Peron from Stanford University Press in 1997. And since then, he's moved into human development. Um, his book from 2010 from Cambridge uh, called Wealth, Health, and Democracy in East Asia and Latin America um, looks at why some countries do better than others at raising life expectancy and reducing infant mortality. And uh, hi, Sandy. Come on in. And um, that book won the, um, the very prestigious Steinrokan Prize for Comparative Social Science Research in uh, 2010 from the ECPR. So Jim's topic tonight is conditional uh, cash transfers uh, in Bolivia, and it's a real pleasure to welcome him to Oxford. Thanks. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks, Tim. And um, it's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks to Tim Power, uh, Lee Payne, and the Center for Latin American Studies at Oxford for inviting me here. And um, well, this is uh, what I am going to talk about, is uh, conditional cash transfers in Bolivia, and let's see where we are. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about, you know, where they came from, whether they work, and uh, especially about whether it's good that they're universal, because what interests me about them, and I am not a Bolivian expert, but uh, I'm very interested in social policy in Latin America, and I'm, I'm interested in the debate between universalism and means testing, and I'm kind of a proponent of universalism. So that was the, the angle uh, that I'm taking. And uh, uh, to reiterate, I'm not a real expert on Bolivia, and I know there's uh, many such experts here, and I, um, I look forward to being able to, uh, to learn from them and, and from everyone. So um, the, the situation here is that Bolivia has these two main conditional cash transfer programs, the Bono Juancito Pinto, which was introduced in 2006, that's for little kids. And the Bono Juana Azurgui, uh, introduced in 2009, which is for uh, expectant new mothers and for uh, their children under two years of age. Each of the two programs is universal in the specific sense that it is not means tested. In other words, not targeted, I guess is the uh, word most used today. It's not targeted uh, exclusively to poor people. Um, unfortunately, uh, there haven't been any really systematic evaluations of either program. Uh, you know, they're, they're both pretty new. And apart from that, uh, you know, no, no baseline surveys were uh, carried out. Uh, so nobody knows what, you know, things were like at time zero. And they were kind of each introduced all at once throughout the entire country. So you can't like take advantage of uh, you know staggered introduction to try to identify what the impact is, as has been done in uh, Mexico and Brazil. But you know from the uh, little evidence that we do have, it seems like neither of the programs has been very successful. Successful at what? You know, improving maternal and infant health, 
improving maternal and infant utilization of health services in the case of Bonohana Asurdui, or at improving uh, you know, school attendance uh, in the case of uh, school children. And also, neither apparently has been that successful at other things that we might think are important, like reducing income poverty uh, and income inequality. So basically, I have a, uh, a paper that um, I'd be happy to send to anyone. Just send me an email. It will come up at the end of the, my email address will come up at the end of this presentation. Um, and the paper uh, describes uh, and interprets where the programs came from and uh, I think shows that uh, they've been unsuccessful and tries to explain why uh, Bolivia's conditional cash transfers were uniquely in Latin America universal rather than means tested and tries to extract some lessons from the Bolivian programs for the general question of whether means testing is good or, or universalism is good. So just to give you an overview, the uh, Bono Juancito Pinto again was introduced um, November 2006. That was, uh, I guess, um, what several months before uh, after Evo Morales became president of Bolivia. Uh, the transfer is pretty small: 28 U.S. dollars once a year to every public school child. So any kid who goes to public school gets the 28 dollars uh, as long as they attend 80 percent of classes um, started out that only grades one through five were eligible. That progressively increased until next year grades one through 12 will be eligible. Um, it's, although it's, the program is universal, it's, um, the benefit incidence is relatively progressive. Uh, of course, 30 percent um, in 2006 got 45 percent of the benefits. The richest 30 percent, only 11 percent. And the monthly income of a child, uh, the monthly income of the family of a child getting the transfer was only a little more than half of the monthly uh, income of uh, the family of a child uh, that is not getting the transfer. The other program, Bono Juana Azurdui, that's the one for um, expectant and new mothers and their children under the age of two. That was announced in May 2009, implemented very shortly thereafter, and it provides um, 17 uh, instances of cash transfer, adding up to a total of about 260 U.S. dollars uh, over a 33-month period. So you get seven dollars each for four prenatal visits, um, then 17 dollars, which looks a little bit low, but I don't know why they did it this way. Um, if, as a uh, mother, you give birth in a health facility, uh, your the birth is certified and uh, you get a checkup a week after uh, the baby is born to make sure you're okay. And then every two months after the baby is born, uh, the mother will get $18 for each uh, sort of well baby visit they do every two months for, for two years. And this one, although it is ostensibly universal, um, you can't get the benefit if you have health insurance or, you know, if you are one of the, you know, small proportion of Bolivians, uh, I think 74% uh, of Bolivian mothers, as I recall, uh, do not have any sort of health insurance whatsoever. So if you're one of the 26% with health insurance, you can't take advantage of this uh, program. Also, if you already have a child less than two years old, you can't take advantage of the benefit. And um, I'm pretty sure this is to 
reduce the incentive to give births, you know, in rapid succession, which is very hazardous. You know, you need some birth spacing there to reduce the risk of uh, maternal and infant uh, injury or or death. So they're trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. So they're trying to deter, you know, they're trying to encourage birth spacing by not allowing you to receive the transfer if you already have a child below the age of two. Um, this program, like Bonoancito Pinto, uh, is, uh, you know, not very expensive. I guess I didn't put up, I think Bonoancito Pinto is about one quarter of one percent of GDP. This one's uh, even less, at least as of 2010, about one-tenth of one percent uh, of GDP. Um, but this one has run into some serious implementation uh, problems in that some beneficiaries are not getting paid. Some of the doctors who have been, you know, asked to go out to these health clinics to, you know, meet the rising demand for maternal and infant health care services, some of them aren't getting to pay, paid. And, you know, there's some uh, newspaper reports that suggest that as soon as this Bono Juana Azurdui was introduced, the number of women visiting health centers in some areas of the country every day, uh, it was about 20 per day before the bono was introduced. And after it was introduced, it went up to about 120. So it's a, a big boost in demand. It's pretty similar to what happened in Thailand under Prime Minister Thaksin when he introduced his 30 baht program. 30 baht is about 75 US cents. And like any health intervention you get under this program costs uh, 75 US cents, you know, anything from, uh, you know, getting a hangnail repaired to a heart transplant, you know, comes in to 75 cents. So, of course, it was very predictably, it jacked up the demand for health services and, uh, you know, doctors and nurses and other health personnel who had previously worked in the public sector, you know, they bailed on the public sector and went, went exclusively into the private sector. So, this is a, uh, you know, a big issue with cash transfers, I think, conditional on, uh, you know, educational attendance or um, utilization of health services, that they, they really do increase the demand for these services. And if you don't uh, increase the supply and the, you know, maintain or improve the quality, um, you're not really doing people all that much good. Okay, well, um, you know, if you ask, uh, Evo Morales or Garcia Linares, the vice president, you know, how come you introduced uh, these programs? Uh, at least with Bono Juancito Pinto, they said that, you know, they just invented it out of whole cloth. That, you know, if you read interviews with them, uh, they say, well, you know, we decided to do this because it basically, it needed to be done. And plus, we had a lot of revenue from natural gas that helped to finance it. So that's where the programs came from. But actually, there were some precursors to the Bono Juancito Pinto. Um, uh, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, uh, who was the candidate of the uh, National Revolutionary Movement in his 2002 uh, platform, had a proposal for a conditional cash transfer for program aimed at getting impoverished girls to attend school and you know they planned to give them $14 each. That was never implemented but it was in uh, the platform and then in uh, El Alto which is a, a large city sort of right next to La Paz, uh, uh, the mayor there introduced a program called Bona Esperanza in 
2003. Um, and this program was actually introduced uh, by a, uh, a center-right politician named uh, Jose Luis uh, Paredes. And it was very similar to uh, um, you know, the, the, what ultimately turned out to be Bono Juancito Pinto in that it gave a certain amount, a small amount of money every month for four months to every first grader in a, a public school. Uh, so there were some precursors to the program, which already cast a little bit of doubt on uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the official story. But hey, you know, the immediate cause of like any government program is, is always going to be some kind of bureaucratic initiative. So you don't want to say that bureaucratic initiative is unimportant. Um, also, I think electoral incentives played a role in originating and maintaining uh, these education-related conditional cash transfer programs because you know you can always you can see them invoked in electoral campaigns. Um, in the case of the Bono Esperanza in El Alto, uh, pressure from parents, for example, uh, a successor to Jose Luis Paredes, uh, instead of giving the kids money decided that he wanted to give kids like backpacks and uh, you know other like goods uh, to help them go to school and the, the parents complained so he had to switch it back uh, to the uh, actual cash transfer because that's what the parents wanted and you know that's another way in which democracy exerts its influence on social policies no reason to obsess on electoral incentives to the exclusion of other implications of democracy, like uh, the freedom of parents to pressure uh, governments. Interestingly, partisanship and ideology don't seem to have played a major role in this program because, you know, the precursor programs were introduced by center-right politicians, not by people with uh, ideologies or party affiliations similar to Evo Morales. And I think we can see that with like Bolsa Familia in Brazil and Oportunidades and in Mexico also that, you know, they start out with one party and then another party takes them up and it doesn't seem to matter what the ideological or partisan coloration of the, uh, you know, the president or uh, administrator of the program is. They uh, just kind of keep them uh, going. Um, I guess when I think of what causes a social policy, I split things up into generative causes and facilitating conditions. And what I've just mentioned is a bunch of generative causes. But you know, the fact of the matter is this Bono Juancito Pinto costs only one quarter of 1% of GDP as compared to uh, the amount that the state contributes to contributory pension funds that serve uh, you know, 15% of Bolivians. Like the state's already contributing 4.5% of GDP uh, to those. Uh, so on the other side, there's also more economic resources with which to pay this small amount of money, thanks to, you know, the discovery of natural gas, uh, resulting ra rapid economic growth. A lot of it was sucked up by the state, so there's a, a budget surplus thanks to, uh, you know, nationalization of hydrocarbons or partial nationalization of hydrocarbons and mining. So low cost and more resources to pay the low cost are among the facilitating conditions. Um, the 2009 Constitution, like a, uh, about 120 constitutions around the world, includes a right, right to education. Of course, this right is not always accompanied by uh, the resources that you need to take advantage of the right. Got to admit that. But 
you know, probably helps a little bit that there is a right to education and a right to health included in the Bolivia in Bolivia's 2009 constitution. The decentralization of uh, the Bolivian uh, administrative system in 1994 uh, paved the way for those uh, municipal experiments that I mentioned in uh, El Alto, and uh, also alternative ways of helping the poor didn't really work that well, uh, not only in Bolivia, but in other Latin American countries. I mean, one, uh, Bolivia was a pioneer of the, the social investment fund where the government says, um, okay, community, uh, you, tell, you tell us what you need. Uh, oh, well, you need some uh, piped water there, so uh, why don't you dig the dishes and, ditches and lay the pipe and we'll provide the PVC tubing um, and uh, you know we'll, 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 we'll essentially help you uh, create a better water system in your town. So the idea there, though, is that the community has to get together and propose a project and contribute some of its own resources to the project. And you know, poor people may be able to do this, but extremely poor people find it difficult to do either of those things. So. In fact, the social investment funds, uh, most analyses like Judith Hendler and others, suggest they didn't really help uh, the extreme poor all that much. And with microfinance programs, which Bolivia also pioneered in Latin America, well, that requires you to uh, believe that you'll be able to pay back the small loan that you take out. And a lot of extremely poor people just don't believe they'll ever be able to pay back a loan. They'll just have to consume it all. So, microfinance programs also had a hard time reaching the poorest of the poor. So anyway, another, you know, facilitating condition for the Bonavancito Pinto, I think, was the failure of alternative uh, social programs to reach the poor. Similar thing with uh, Bona Juana Azurdui, if you ask Garcia Linares or Morales uh, where it came from, they'll say, well, you know, we thought about the situation of uh, single mothers in impoverished communities and our hearts melted and we decided to implement these programs. But, you know, in fact, uh, the World Bank uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, uh, you know, ha had already uh, started to encourage Bolivia to implement a program somewhat similar to the one that eventually emerged. And in the 2006 uh, MAS platform, there was uh, something called the Zero Malnutrition uh, Program, which provided a small cash transfer conditional on the use of health services. And, you know, it was to be uh, targeted to the poorest 164 municipalities in the country and preceded by a pilot program. And, you know, the World Bank uh, likes targeting and don't want to squander money on the people who don't uh, need it. So, anyway, uh, again, the fact that there was this precursor, as World Bank encouraged, uh, uh, you know, component of the zero malnutrition program, already casts a little doubt on the official story. And apparently, uh, according to um, newspaper reports, Morales, after getting into office, simply ignored the zero malnutrition <laughs> program. He was more concerned with like the re recall vote and uh, you know the. Um, provinces that wanted to, uh, uh, you know, create some distance from the, the central government. So he basically didn't have much time to pay attention to the zero malnutrition program and uh, apparently uh, didn't. And in fact, 
several international financial and you know UN related institutions were involved in the program. Uh, again, electoral incentives played a big role in this uh, program, and in fact, such a big role it was introduced right before the 2009 election that uh, people in the opposition claimed that you know Morales was simply using the program for political purposes, and you know again. Uh, partisanship and ideology uh, doesn't seem to have been uh, a big part of this. Uh, in other words, uh, World Bank and uh, people in the uh, you know in in the MAS uh, party were were sort of collaborating on this program. As far as the facilitating conditions go, quite similar: low cost, more resources, constitutional right, and again the failure of alternative social policies to reach the poorest. As for the impact, um, the evidence that there is doesn't look too great. Like, you know, what the uh, education-related conditional cash transfer is supposed to do is to get the kids to enroll in school, attend the classes, stay out of the labor force, and reduce poverty and inequality. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, kind of hard to say if the Pono Juancito Pinto did any one of these things. Um, I guess I won't uh, uh, beat this to death because I already explained the main reasons why it's hard to evaluate it uh, at the outset. But you know, it, it's uh, a little disturbing that public primary net enrollment, which is enrollment in school in the appropriate age group uh, in primary school, actually <coughs> fell in the two years after the program was was introduced as a proportion of the age-eligible population. Um, what evidence there is from studies that were probably affected by selection bias, uh, or there was one like simulation study that uh, I reported in the paper, um, whether or not the effects are statistically significant, they are substantively not very large. And uh, I mean, the effects on enrollment and uh, uh, attendance and child labor, and as far as like reducing income poverty or income inequality, 28 bucks a year is, is not going to affect those things. Um, for example, there's one survey suggested that the average child laborer in Bolivia makes like almost 170 U.S. dollars a year. So, you know, 28 bucks is just not all that much um, in view of the, uh, you know, the the overall uh, ability of a for family to consume. A health-related conditional cash transfer program is supposed to increase health service utilization, uh, improve nutritional status, uh, reduce infant, child, and maternal mortality, and again, reduce poverty and inequality. Same problems in assessing Bono Juana Azurdui. And again, what evidence there is doesn't look that great. Uh, births in health facilities did go up in the two years after the uh, uh, bono was introduced, but it went up at you know barely more than the same rate that it had gone up in the two years before uh, the bono was introduced. And you know these are years of pretty rapid economic growth in Bolivia, so you would have expected some significant rise. Uh, uh, for you know the proportion of um, uh, expectant mothers who made the four prenatal visits actually went down after the, the program was introduced. Uh, immunization went up for a couple vaccines, went down for a couple of others. Can't really 
assess the effects on infant and child mortality because the last remotely credible estimates are from 2008. They've just done a survey. It was uh, they've just done a census completed in December 2012, but the data haven't been uh, you know assessed yet or uh, converted into estimates of infant or under five mortality. And you know as I mentioned earlier, there are some disturbing implementation programs in that you know the mothers aren't getting paid, the doctors aren't getting paid, uh, and so on. Okay, well, I think, you know, to the extent that it is true that the programs haven't been very affected, the main reason is the supply side. You know, the quality of education in Bolivia is low. In other words, there's not, you know, parents don't have huge incentives to send their kids to school because, you know, they only get educated for four hours a day and the teachers aren't very well trained and, it, you know, there's, uh, maybe not that many jobs in parts of the country where the, the little kids come from. Um, as far as the health care goes, Bolivia has a terrible shortage of doctors and nurses, in particular in uh, remote areas, of which there are a lot in Bolivia. Documentation is another big problem. To take advantage of the transfers, you know, you got to have things like a cedula, you know, uh, identity card, a birth certificate. And uh, not everybody has those things in Bolivia. Sometimes, like you have to go to uh, you know the provincial capital, the departmental capital, to get these certificates. And some people just uh, never go there. It's, uh, so documentation is a big problem with conditional cash transfers throughout Latin America and many Latin American countries. Many of the people who are legally eligible to benefit from the program do not uh, obtain the benefit because they don't have the documentation. Um, obviously, the Bolivian state is not the most, uh, you know, efficient state uh, in even in Latin America or, or uh, in the developing world, and that's sort of an overarching reason why there aren't enough, um, you know, doctors, nurses, um, uh, good schools, and, and that kind of thing. So that might be like an overarching reason why the CCTs haven't been effective. Again, I think the issue is mainly on the, uh, the supply side. In the specific case of the Bono Juancito Pinto, it's been shown that dropouts from school tend to happen after grade six, and that primary enrollment uh, up to you know enrollment up to grade six in the year that the Bono Juancito Pinto was introduced was pushing 100% already. So uh, they probably should have targeted to the grade levels that they're now targeting it to more and more. And also, as I mentioned earlier, I think. 28 bucks a year is just really too small to make a difference. So at the outset, I mentioned that why I'm interested in these programs is that they're universalistic. So I guess it's incumbent upon me to at least take a stab at explaining why they are Latin America's only universalistic as opposed to means-tested programs. And here I want to emphasize that there are plenty of universalistic unconditional cash transfer programs, including um, in some places in Latin America. In Brazil, there's, uh, there, there's a, what the pension, it's the funeral pension program, and um, it's later been expanded. So, but these aren't conditional on the recipients doing anything in particular besides being old. Uh, in fact, the only universal conditional cash transfer program that I know about, apart 
from the program in Bolivia is one, believe it or not, in Mongolia called the Child Money Program. And in, uh, in Mongolia, the child gets real money, uh, $117 per year. And actually, believe it or not, Bolivia, I, I checked, uh, has a slightly lower GDP per capita than Bolivia. So, you know, 117 bucks. okay, now we're talking. That, that might have an effect. Um, as far as I can see, one thing that encourages universalism, I would at least hypothesize, is that, you know, in a country where lots of people are going to pass a means test anyway, might as well make it universal because means testing is administratively difficult and uh, expensive. And, you know, at the time the Bonavancito Pinto was introduced, there's various estimates of poverty, in fact, an annoyingly uh, large range of estimates, but they were hovering around 50%, so, you know, that's, that's a lot of people. Um, another reason, I think, that there's always a push for uh, social programs to be universalistic is that politicians want to get as many votes as possible, and if they're introducing the programs to get votes, you know, that's an incentive to make them universal. So how come they aren't universal everywhere? Well, it's because other things um, push against the programs being universal, uh, for instance, lack of resources in a country where only 15% of the population is poor, like you make it universal, you're putting yourself in for a big expense. So probably, you know, politicians would like to say, yeah, everybody should get this, this cash transfer program, so vote for me because I'm going to give you money. I mean, that's a good way to get votes. But, uh, you know, there's, there's constraints on doing that. But, you know, just because... Uh, you know, in many Latin American countries, uh, in most Latin American countries, the programs are means tested. It doesn't follow from that that there is no incentive to make the programs universal based on electoral incentives. It's just that those incentives are outweighed by constraints and competing in uh, incentives. Uh, another um, factor, I think, as to why the Bolivian cash transfer programs are uh, conditional cash transfer programs are universalistic. I guess I should say, by the way, Bolivia has an unconditional cash transfer pro program called Renta Dignidad, which is also universalistic and is extremely expensive. And that goes to every person in the country over the age of 60, even if they're a millionaire. If you do have another pension, like if you are among the 15% of the Bolivians who uh, received a contributory pension, instead of getting like you know, $340 a year, you get $270 a year, but it's still, excuse me, a month. I mean, these are big, these are, these are big, uh, big amounts of money spent on, um, now, now I'm wondering, no, no, I think it's a year. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm getting a little carried away here. No, it's a big, it's a big, anyway, it's, it's a much, you know, much more expensive than these, these other programs, but Bolivia does have an unconditional universalistic cash transfer program, but I think one of the reasons Bolivia, you know, was able to make their programs universal is that in other countries, as soon as the World Bank gets involved, they want to target, you know, like I said, they don't want to squander the resources on the not so poor and the rich. Uh, they want to concentrate them on the very poor where, they, you know, it'll do the most good. And, you know, in their opinion, that's, it's worth doing the, the means testing uh, in order to achieve that. Bolivia, it so happens, when at the time they were introducing these programs, had a huge windfall from hydrocarbons revenues and to a lesser extent uh, mineral revenues. 
and this freed them from dependency on World Bank loans in order to finance the program. So I think that was a, another facilitating condition for universalism. And I, it just occurred to me that in thinking about how come Bolivia and Mongolia are the only two countries on the planet with universalistic conditional cash transfer programs, well, they're both big mineral exporters. And, you know, Mongolia, I think their main export is gold, and they have a lot of other, um, you know, mineral exports as well. And it, it just strikes me that mineral resources or hydrocarbons resources, they, you know, everybody knows what they are. They live under the ground. They're unusually easy in terms of natural resources as, you know, as opposed to like automobile plants or even coffee bushes to portray as sort of a national patrimony. Once you take them out of the ground, they're gone, you know. And so I think that also promotes universalism. It's like, you know, everybody, everybody in the country can say like, hey, that's, that's my oil, uh, that's my copper, that's my tin. Like, once you pull that out of the ground, that's gone. So I want a little piece of this. I have a, I have a right to it. Okay, well, you know, in uh, my opinion, again, the, the problems um, in terms of impact with the Bolivia's two conditional cash transfer programs don't really have much to do with their universalistic design. They have more to do with the administrative incompetence of the Bolivian state and the other uh, factors that I mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to step back and consider what the advantages of means testing and advantages of universalism are. And uh, the only advantage of means testing that I can think of uh, is that it reduces errors of inclusion. In other words, it reduces um, government giving money to people who don't need it. You know, although means testing obviously doesn't eliminate errors of inclusion because in a lot of means tested programs, plenty of money does go to the people who don't need it, either because of you know, clientelism and corruption or because of uh, just ad administrative errors of various sorts. On the other hand, I think universalism has some very considerable advantages. Uh, it reduces errors of exclusion, excluding the people who need the money. It doesn't eliminate these errors because there's always the possibility that, for example, people won't have the documents they need to uptake the programs. Uh, it also reduces administrative costs and other administrative bur burdens. Some states are too incompetent to carry out means testing effectively, and you know means testing is uh, expensive. It's an adds to. It's another. It's another thing that you have to do. Um, it's well known that means tested programs uh, violate privacy rights and uh, often cause program participants to feel stigmatized. There's plenty of evidence from places like Indonesia that like people don't want to pick up health cards that are given only to poor people that enable them to use public health services at a huge discount because they don't like to be classified as poor. It's like, I can take care of myself. Uh, you know, that's uh, a lot of people just uh, feel like it's undignified to, you know, succeed in passing a means test. Um, you know, I think universalistic programs, more than means tested programs, a lot, you know, say like, look, it's available to everybody. You want this, you meet the conditions, you take it up. It frames people as agents 
rather than as wards of the state. You know, you're a very poor person, so um, you know, as a as a beneficence to you because we feel sorry for you, uh, we're going to give you this money. I mean, I think it's more it's more dignified to be treated as an agent rather than a patient. Means-tested programs also have the congenital defect, and those people who don't uh, pass the means test or you know don't benefit from the programs. You know, they resent the fact that other people are there benefiting from them. Uh, there's disincentives to get a formal sector job and, uh, you know, jack your income up above uh, the threshold where you can't pass the means test anymore, so then you don't get the benefit. Uh, there's a lot more opportunities for clientelism and corruption when there's a means test to manipulate. And, uh, you know, the most famous advantage of universalistic programs is that they tend to be sustainable and better funded. Think, you know, National Health Service, because, like, uh, you know, the, um, the rich and the, and the poor uh, both have incentives in the quality and continuity uh, of, of the programs. Okay, well, I think you can actually improve these programs. Um, basically, I think that countries, uh, at least countries that have a lot of poverty, where you know uh, most people would pass a means test, really should consider introducing universalistic conditional cash transfer programs. You know, there have been some suggestions among other people who advocate universalism in general, like Evelyn Huber, that you can like you know, maybe screen out the top 10 or 20 percent, but that's still, you know, means testing. It'll, you'll still incur some administrative cost. You'll run into some of the, the problems that I showed on the last uh, slide. So uh, what I'm suggesting is that the benefit be made large enough to make a difference to the well-being of the poor people, but not large enough that rich people or even not so poor people are willing to uh, uh, go through the transaction costs of obtaining the benefit. I, literature I've read recently, these are called ordeal mechanisms, which is not a very pleasant uh, term, but it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty graphic. So that's what I'm advocating here, is that what we could do is add in a public solidarity campaign to persuade the wealthy not to take advantage of their right to claim the transfer. In other words, you know, if you're rich, you know, save this money for the poor. Don't burden the state with giving you a transfer if you don't need it. It would be like a, a public persuasion campaign, like trying to persuade people to recycle or not use their cars so much or, you know, eat in more healthy ways. So um, I, I think basically what you would be doing in this case is be adding guilt to a litany of other transaction costs that wealthier people experience in taking up a program to which they're legally entitled. In other words, you'd expose the rich rather than the poor to the stigma uh, for once. You know, if you do take up the program, then you're stigmatized as being a, you know, a person who doesn't have solidarity uh, with the uh, truly needy people in, uh, in the country. So anyway, that's, that's my modest proposal. Thank you very much.